Turn to Leviticus 25 if you have your Bible. If you don't, there are some Bibles back there on the cart, and if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home as a gift from us. Leviticus 25. So like you, I've been following everything I can about the Ebola crisis going on in West Africa right now. Just, you know, any kind of story I can glean about that, that saga over there, I, I just, I'm grabbing onto it. One of the stories I heard recently has really stuck with me all week. I've been just mulling it over. I can't fully wrap my mind around it, and so I'll share it with you. Uh, basically, the organizations that are fighting Ebola in West Africa right now are having a really hard time raising the funds they need to continue to fight Ebola. Okay? The need is overwhelming, and the funds just aren't coming in. So there's this researcher, Paul Slovic, who in this story says he thinks he knows what's going on. He did this study where he showed this first group of people an image of a starving girl, a girl suffering from starvation, and said, how much will you give to help this girl? Okay, how much will you give financially? He then shows a second group the same image of that girl and asks them the same question, how much will you give to help this girl? But first, he, he tells them all the data about starvation worldwide, about the millions and millions who are suffering from starvation, just like this girl. So how much will you give to help this little girl? And you would think, rationally, that second group has just as much reason, or maybe more because they know how big of a problem this is, how global of a problem is. They would have just as much reason to give as the first group, and maybe more. But in fact, it's the opposite. Okay. The second group gave half as much to help the little girl as the first group. Why? He says, it's hopelessness. Hopelessness. That when we are presented with a problem, an, an overwhelming problem, a problem of seemingly insurmountable need, something we could never begin to touch the hem of the garment of this problem, that we just shut down instead of meeting the needs that we can meet. Okay, it might explain why more money is not coming in to fight Ebola because even though people might see an image of a little boy or a little girl suffering from Ebola in West Africa, they're also hearing this constant barrage of information about there's no cure, thousands are sick, thousands are dying, no end in sight, more will die. So hopelessness wins. Whereas the story says people decline to do what they can do because they feel bad about what they can't do. I think one of the areas Christians, myself included, kind of feel overwhelmed by hopelessness. One of the areas that we can get caught up in this is when we think about poverty, people who are poor. So right now, just in America, 46 million people are in poverty, 46 million. You can come closer to home in Shelby County right now, 70,000 children are considered in poverty, 70,000. What's worse, if you think about that, and that is hopeless, but what's worse, if you think about it, are the times where you've gone out on a limb and you've tried to help somebody in poverty and it's backfired, and you've learned, man, this is a really difficult cycle to break. Poverty is a vicious cycle. <clears throat> Lindsay and I were in, living in Abilene, and we had this neighbor down the alleyway with, uh, from us. We lived in a little alleyway apartment. He had been there for about a month or two. He was recently out of jail. He was bouncing around from apartment to apartment. We were kind of getting to know him. And he came up to me one day and he said, Eric, I need 
$40 is all I need, and I can pay rent this month. It'll get me back on my feet. I'll find a job this month. I'll be able to pay rent. Just $40. I'll even pay you back this week. Okay. So I had my doubts about that, but I was like, yeah, sure, man. Here's $40. The next morning, his apartment was totally empty, and I never saw him again. Okay. I knew it was empty because he had even taken the blinds that came with the apartment down, and they were gone. Okay. He had taken it all. Poverty is a really vicious cycle. Heard this story this week about a girl named Desiree Metcalf. She's 24 years old. She lives in New York. She's a mother to three kids. Okay. And she grew up to a single poor mom who abused her. So eventually Desiree ran away. Okay. Her problems start all the way back then. Desiree runs away. She ends up in foster care. And during her stint in foster care, she's with 26 different foster parents and goes to 26 different schools. She eventually drops out. She, she doesn't finish school until this social worker takes Desiree under her wings, okay? Gets Desiree back into school. She finishes school, eventually gets Desiree a full ride to the University of Florida. And a week before she goes to start her classes at the University of Florida, she finds out she's pregnant with her first child. Okay? So she drops out. Okay? Then the state pays $3,000 to train her for a job that she doesn't have a car to get to. She can't make the money to get the job because she's on her own has no resources. So eventually she marries this guy who is not the father to any of her three children, but marries him because he seems like possibly a way out of the cycle. And he is for a while. He's there long enough that her benefits get cut from 700 to 200 a month by the state because he's working a part-time job at a fast food restaurant. And then he leaves them. Now she's making $200 a month from the state, raising three kids. Yeah, it's desperate. And some of this is her doing and some it's inherited and we all know that it's complex but what it confirms is poverty is a really vicious cycle one author said recently there are no silver bullets to end a complex multifaceted and persistent problem like poverty she might be right you think about poverty long enough you get hopeless Maybe there aren't any silver bullets. But in Leviticus 25, there might be. This might be God's silver bullet. So Leviticus is this book that stops you in your tracks when you try to read the Bible through in a year. You know, you get to the parts on mildew and you just can't take any more of it. But there's actually some really great stuff in there, especially in Leviticus 25, where we have God's silver bullet, which is the Jubilee year. Basically, it works like this. Every 50 years, if you're poor in Israel, you get out of poverty, okay? You get all of your stuff back that you've sold off. Or if you're in debt, the debt is canceled, okay? If you're in prison, you're freed. If you're in slavery, you're free. Every 50 years, it says, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be the 50th year, a jubilee for you. Okay, so the pile of problems that Desiree had, the same problem that my neighbor had, the pile of problems facing 46 million people in America, or 70,000 children in Shelby County, all of those problems are scooped up and thrown in the trash. Everybody gets a clean slate on the 50th year. So no matter how bad you messed up, if it was your fault, or no matter how bad the problem was that you were born into, or if you made terrible decisions, probably at least once in your lifetime, every 50 years, you are going to get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Once. Sounds really great. Sounds like a silver bullet, but 
You may remember Chris talked about Jubilee a few months ago, and he said something that stuck with me, and probably with you, and you're probably thinking about it as we talk about it. We have no indication Israel ever actually practiced Jubilee year. They never did it. There is this once in Jeremiah where they start to do it, and then they take it back because they realize it means freeing all their slaves and canceling their debts, and who wants to do that, right? You know, we're kind of tempted to get high and mighty about this and say, oh, they weren't doing what God told them to do. But think about it. It is a really high price for the wealthy to pay. Now, uh, what if you loan somebody not just $40, but $40,000? And they pay back $2,000 over the next two years, and then it's Jubilee year, so you just got to cancel the other thirty-eight. Oh, don't worry about it. Who's going to do that? Who in here is going to do that? That is a huge price to pay. But maybe there's more to the resistance. I've been, I've been looking over Leviticus 25, and what I can't help but notice as I've been thinking about this is that that poverty cycle that my neighbor is, was in, you know, that poverty cycle that Desiree Metcalf is in, that poverty cycle is right here in Leviticus 25. This text describes how a person sinks deeper and deeper and deeper into poverty, and can't get out. Look, it starts with selling all your stuff. You're in financial hardship. You sell everything you've got. Look, if any one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, if they do not acquire the means to repay, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee, and then it'll be returned in the Jubilee, and they can go back to their property. Okay, first you divest yourself. You get into a hard time financially and you start selling everything you have, okay? But if that doesn't work, you take out a loan. You get debt. You get a credit card. Here's how it goes. If any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and are are unable to support themselves among you, help them, and this is how you help them. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. So you've sold everything you have, your, your means for making money. You've taken out a loan, so now you're in debt. Your situation's getting worse, so you've got no choice but to hire yourself out to another Israelite as a, basically a servant. So this is how it describes it. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, they're to be treated as hired workers instead of slaves or temporary residents among you. They're to work for you until the year of Jubilee, but it hasn't worked. In fact, it's worse. Okay, you're sinking deeper and deeper. You sold your stuff. You have debt. You hired yourself out to somebody. It's not working. You're not making enough. So the only way you can think of to get food is to hire yourself out to a foreigner, at which point you become a slave. Watch this. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor, any one of them, sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan. The difference is if you sell yourself to an Israelite, you're a servant. To a non-Israelite, you're now a slave. You have no rights. You see, the whole cycle is right there. And throughout the cycle, at each one of these points, the text gives us these ways for redeeming somebody from the cycle, ways for busting them out. I didn't read you all those ways. It's a long chapter. But at each step, there is this way to get somebody out of the cycle. And God says, if none of that works, even if somebody is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be, are to be released in the year of Jubilee. Everybody gets out of the cycle eventually. But Israel never does it. Why? 
Well, I can't think, can't help but think that they knew how vicious the cycle was. And that if we, they think, offer everybody in poverty a lifeline, well, a lot of them are going to end up back in poverty again. They'll take the $40, and they'll move out in the middle of the night, and they'll take the blinds. Let's be real. We're not going to make a dent in our poverty problem. Poverty's too big. It's too hopeless. Why try? Be realistic, God. Jubilee. We're kind of tempted to assume the Israelites were selfish, that they didn't want to give up their money or their slaves, but maybe they're not. Maybe they're just hopeless. They see thousands among them who are poor and might just stay poor no matter what they do. And so people decline to do what they can do because they feel bad about what they can't do. But that's not rational. Just because you can't feed the millions of people who are starving doesn't mean you don't feed that one little girl who is. You don't give whatever you can to feed that girl. It's not rational, right? I also don't think it's faithful either. I've been thinking a lot about the early church and what they do about poverty. In Acts 2, it's a text you well know, the church rallies together to feed those. They collect all the resources to feed and empower those in their midst, who are hungry, who don't have. They, they take up what they can to take care of those that they can. In Acts 6, the church creates this system for taking care of the widows in their midst. They know that poverty is this massive problem, but they do what they can for these widows who are right there before them. They haven't solved global poverty, but they are changing the lives of a few in poverty. You know, Paul talks about this collection that he takes for the church in Jerusalem, this church that is apparently poor. It's racked its resources, okay? He talks about this in several letters. Paul knew there were those suffering from poverty all over the ancient world, but that doesn't stop Paul and his churches from doing what they can for those that they can impact. Maybe that's what Jubilee's about. You know, maybe God knew it was not going to be the silver bullet to eradicate poverty once and for all. Assuming God knows everything, you've got to assume he knew that. But maybe God intended for Jubilee to be this nudge for some of his people to get involved on some level in the lives of poverty for some person to get involved. Israel never practices Jubilee year, but what if one person had? What if one person had freed their slaves or canceled the debts to someone they'd lended to? What if one banker had given back the possessions, the livestock, all the all the property of someone they had repossessed on? What if they had just given it back? You know, while Jubilee may not have ever happened for everybody in Israel, it could have happened for one person. And for that one person, it might have been enough to break the cycle. Maybe. So, what's the freedom of one person worth? What's the freedom of one person worth? Look over Leviticus 25 if you've got your Bible open. And notice that the language is mostly singular. If a man, if one of your brothers, if one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty, bust that guy out with some good old jubilee. Do whatever it takes. Just get that guy out of the cycle. Almost all the language in the whole chapter about jubilee is singular. He, him, that guy, your brother. Why? 
Well, maybe because it is hopeless to think about eradicating poverty once and for all for everybody in Israel, but you could change one guy or one gal's life. You know, God's vision for Jubilee, it might have been tribal, might have been national, might even have been global, but his instructions about Jubilee are individual and personal. Get that person out of the cycle. So how much is one person's freedom worth? You know, maybe as God's man or God's woman, I've got to really ask myself this question. How much will I give to grant freedom to one person? You know, not what's the best tax option, the best nonprofit program, the best policy for ending homelessness, poverty, hopelessness, Across the world, across America, across Tennessee, maybe those are all good questions to ask. But first, as a Christian, I've got to ask myself, how much would I give to grant Jubilee to one person? And if you can ask yourself that question, it proves you're not hopeless. Let me tell you something incredible. Over the last 22 years, since 1992, Highlanders have given... 4,954,512 to outreach Memphis and around the world. Almost $5 million. Who's been here since 1992? Hands up. Keep your hands up. Who's been here since 99? Hands up. Hands up. Uh, 2005. Anybody been here? 2010. Yeah, who's been here the last year? Okay. Okay. Almost $5 million, and that's not counting the portion of our weekly ministry budget that goes towards funding outreach, which some of it does. That's just our special collections since 1992. That is an incredible amount of money dedicated to changing one individual's life after another. Why? Why have you done that? You know, all you that raised your hand, I've only been here two and a half years, okay? My portion of that $5 million number is really small. It's you all that have borne the weight of that gift for so long, and I'm wondering why you do it. And visitors, if it's your first Sunday here, we don't talk about money all the time, but we do believe it's important and it's powerful, and in fact, next week, we're going to take a collection for $215,000, and this church is going to give that money generously to change one individual's life after another, and I got to wonder why. You know, why? Maybe you're wondering that. And it's one word. It's hope. You know, Highlanders give generously because they have this defiant spirit in them. And what I mean by that is that the world is telling them it's hopeless. You are not going to make a dent in the poverty problem. You're not going to make a dent in the homeless problem. You're not going to make a dent in the adoption problem. You're not going to make a dent in the sin problem. Those cycles are too vicious. There's nothing you can do. It's hopeless. And every cent that you give is this proclamation that is God's man or God's woman, I choose hope. And if God believes that Jubilee is possible for any one of his children, then I share that hope. If God has that kind of hope, then I do too, and we do too. Larry McKenzie always comes by my office and pushes me on this, pushes me on hope. He says, do you have Romans 15, 13 memorized yet? Maybe you've heard this. They recite it every week at the end of the chapel service. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow in hope. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, maybe hopelessness, despite the research, is not an option for Christians. You know, maybe it's just not an option for those who follow the God of hope or for those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe we, maybe those folks, maybe we've got to ask ourselves really defiantly, how much is the freedom of one person worth? And apparently, you all believe it's worth a lot. I've got no doubt we'll raise 215000 next week because you're a defiant group of really hopeful people. So let me leave you with a thought. This, uh, we're going to scan through our ministries that this outreach contribution supports. Many of these ministries are dedicated to breaking down destructive cycles for one individual at a time. Look at them as they go through. So what I want you to think about is this reality. Okay, Agape Child and Family Services may not end homelessness or poverty in Memphis this year. Right? But for one woman who's in danger of losing her children because of homelessness, they will change her life. Her life will be drastically different. She'll make it into a family in transition home that we helped pay for here, and that will be just the step she needs to break out of the cycle, just the step, just the leg up. And her kids who are in danger of being taken from their mom and entering the system get to stay with her, and maybe it'll be just the thing they need to start a new cycle in their life. Okay. They may not end homelessness or poverty in Memphis this year, but they will change one woman's life. And so the question is, how much is that worth to you? How much is one woman's freedom, her jubilee, worth to you? HopeWorks is not going to end joblessness in Memphis this year. Okay. I pray that they do, likely it won't happen. In fact, some students in Hope Works may not make it through the problem. But there will be this one man who gets a job finally for the first time in his life doing something that he loves. Right? And he'll show up at work every morning on time. He'll get a promotion. He'll start managing people. And he'll come home every two weeks with a paycheck for the first time in his life. And his wife and kids will never go hungry again. And the question is, how much is that worth to you? How much is one man's freedom worth to you? Nathan and Karen Luther will not educate every child in the Philippines this year. They just simply won't do it. But they will change the life of one. Right? One child who can't get education anywhere else. One child who's wrecking the system. No teachers want to teach him. They'll take him in. They've done this in the past. And for that one child, how life-changing will it be to be at Shiloh Christian School? What is that one child's future worth to you? You know, in Timothy Hill Children's Ranch, Sunnybrook Children's Home, Agape Child and Family Services, uh, Paragold Children's Home, all these organizations impacting children, they are not going to end uh, orphan, uh, they're not going to end the problems facing orphans this year in our country. They're just not going to do it, but they are going to change the life of one or two. And what's that worth to you? And Highland's brand new adoption fund, okay, is finally going to make it possible for one couple in this family who's wanted for a long time to adopt to do it. Okay. There are a thousand children in DCS care in Shelby County right now, and every one of those children may not find their forever home this year. But if one child does, now if one child gets taken in by a Highland family who before did not have a mom or a dad, is that worth it? You know, if one child finds their forever family 
this year because of the money you give next week. Is that worth it? One child who comes to this family, runs these halls, hugs your waist, and one day says that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, and Savior. What is that worth? It's worth a lot. A whole lot. And I hope you'll be part of it next week. Will you pray with me? God, I give you praise. You are an incredible God. I give you praise that you have a heart for breaking people out of cycles of destruction. Now, God, I give you praise most of all that you sent your son to break me out. You've broken out all these people in this family by the redemptive work of your son, never slaves to sin any longer. But God, we know that we're all in our own kinds of poverty, that you see us and you know us. And I pray that you empower us to recognize the power of one person's life being changed. And God, we know that that is your plan for changing the world, jubilee to one after another. And I pray that this church will be a part of it. You'll make us generous and we'll give freely of the rich blessings that you've given us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. I will never be the same again. I can never return.